You better listen, my brother, cause if you do, you can hear their voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land, and they're willing to we all come to understand. None of us are free, none of us are free. All right, good evening, hi, and welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's weekly live stream. I'm Chris Garlock from Union City Radio. My co-host this week is Patrick Dixon from the Labor History Today podcast. Hey, Patrick. Good to be here, Chris. I'm excited about our guest this evening. It's just a shame it's such a quiet week. What are we going to talk about, Chris? <laughs> well, we'll, we'll figure that out. Uh, a little bit later, so we have a brand new organizing win, so that'll be fun for you. We also get reactions to the nomination of union leader Marty Walsh to be Secretary of Labor. Plus, uh, why does Maryland need a new state song? And Johnny Cash plays Folsom Prison. But first, uh, there is a little something something that happened today. Uh, the second, count them, two impeachments of Donald J. Trump. He's number one. Joining us to get a worker's eye view is American Prospect Editor-at-Large, Harold Meyerson, and John Russo, Associate Editor at the Working Class Perspectives blog. Welcome to you both. Good, Good to, to be, be here. here. All right, Harold, I want to start off with, uh, uh, I, I love your leads. I always love your leads. I mean, I love everything you write, but your leads are just great. Here's, here's your lead from last week's column, which I'm sure you've forgotten already because it's a week old now. But Donald Trump's presidency climax today with the definitive expression of what it's been always been about, one man's psychopathic narcissism and his appeal to a pathetic lumpen proletariat. Um, yeah, well, it, 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 the lumpen proletariat also includes the lumpen rich. Uh, and as uh, a former American prospect writing fellow, Adam Serwer noted in the Atlantic, I think yesterday, um, you know, Trump referred uh, to some of the people uh, storming the Capitol as low class. Um, you know, the nuttiness uh, and pernicious uh, racism that was underlying the attack on the Capitol last week really was pretty cross class. Uh, uh, and that, that includes the definitely non-working class Republican members of Congress <laughs> who uh, have been abetting this just almost as much as Trump. I mean, today, as we speak, it's just been a couple hours since Trump was uh, impeached for inciting uh, the violence that took place at the Capitol last week. But while he was the insider in chief, hundreds of Republican elected officials have been saying the election was a fraud uh, ever since early November, and they're abetted by their their echo chamber in the right wing media. So there there's a lot of there's a lot of blame and guilt to go around, um, and it's both cross class and not simply uh, Donald Trump's doing. 
John, let me uh, bring you in. Uh, you also, uh, recent column, uh, also a good opening line. Some, <laughs> uh, predictably, politicos and commentators spent much of 2020 debating why working class voters supported Trump and how the Democrats could win them back. Although we've occasionally contributed to these conversations, we're also getting tired of them. So why are you getting tired of these conversations? I think they've become too simplistic and I must say based on sociology and, and different variables and discussions that really ignore a whole set of cultural issues. I mean, and what winds up happening is that the working class gets lumped up as one block uh, and when it's much broader, much more difficult to really think about what is the working class. It's interracial, it's not just the white working class. And, but they often get that lump, as a result of that, they often get blamed for anything that's happening. And that's why I'm so glad to what Harold said, was that those people who were involved in the, the, the riot or coup, however you wanna talk about it, it was multi-class. And I was asked by a reporter to comment, well, isn't it great that uh, all these executives and the National Associations of Manufacturers <laughs> and all these other groups, you know, are wrapping themselves in democracy and uh, basically saying that the, this was terribly wrong and something's gone wrong. And that even Mike Pence has considered, you know, removing the Donald Trump from office. As, well, there's an, uh, there's an array of academics and pundits and professional elites. I've been saying that, well, it might be that they're not just uh, condemning the violence and the destruction of democratic values. A lot of what they're saying is pretty disingenuous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, given their role in economic restructuring, advocating austerity programs, use of globalization as a means to lower labor costs, and uh, undermine union uh, bargaining power. Uh, and when they're trapped by their actions and when it becomes contested, they argue that perhaps uh, their embrace of neoliberal economics uh, and globalization went too far. And now we hear the refrain, we have to turn back to a form of stakeholder capitalism. Um, I have in the back of my mind I think that they are worried about something else. Uh huh. That the next time this occurs, they're going to be coming after them. I think and that's so there's a, and you listen to the tech oligarchs who are really worried about the impact of uh, auto, uh, artificial intelligence and technology and how that's going to exacerbate the already terrible unemployment situation. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, think I think there's uh, a, a sense in which they, the, the folks that John is talking about, contributed to the sense of rage and betrayal. Now, they themselves have not become the target uh, of uh, those who expressed rage and betrayal uh, last week and in general on the, on the right wing of, of American uh, politics. But, uh, you know, they're certainly, you know, they, they are among the, uh, the, the major forces that that lit the fuse. One, one quick note also about the corporations that have suddenly said, oh, well, we ain't given to uh, the- Republican Come to Jesus moment. Now. I noticed one of them was Dow Chemical. And oh, for really? A moment, yes, for a moment, I wondered if they would actually drop napalm on like Kevin McCarthy. It turns out they, they're not, but the, the, I don't know, the, for some reason, <laughs> that just 
that, that thought just I, I see where you're going with that. I see where. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I, I think what's important to add to what Harold was saying, if you listen to the rhetoric and the narratives, and I'm not saying that the violence and all the other stuff that was going right. on, if right. you listen to the narratives, they're frequently fighting against elites and yes. corporate interests and what. Just, right. I, I don't, we have a dog. Hey, do, pets are always good. We're pro pet yeah, on this I'm show. Yes, yes. Our, our reader, our, our viewership just doubled thanks to the dog. So it's really. Well, it's funny because Sherry's doing the Zoom call in the other bedroom. The dog <laughs> is like, why, why? <laughs> so obviously, your dog wants to do a Zoom call too. Yes, she wants yeah. to be in it too. So you know, but so I think it's really interesting. I, and I said as part of this other interview I did is that if you look at that language. And look at the language of the Black Lives Matter and the, some of the Latino X movements. They're very similar. Yes. So the colors yes. may be different, but their grievances are the same. I think that's such an important point. I want to get into that, but I also want to bring Patrick in uh, as well. Go ahead, Patrick. In, in, in recent days, Joe Biden seems to uh, have a series of stock sayings and one of the one he seems to refer to most often is either this is America or this isn't America. <laughs> um, it's often a rather simplistic analysis. Does Biden, do you think Biden has the, the I don't know, the sort of sophistication or the, the, the sort of analysis to navigate what's really quite a complex uh, situation here? Uh, Harold, you want to take that? Yeah, I don't think any president has ever taken office at a time of pandemic, uh, economic uh, catastrophe for a chunk of the nation, and sort of ongoing insurrection. I mean, that, that's a hell of a challenge. You know, if you look at Lincoln's first inaugural address, not his second, but his first at a time when so seven southern states had already seceded, and we're threatening to take over uh, federal military installations. Lincoln gave a very, very, very long address about the legalities of all this and, uh, you know, then had a peroration uh, appealing to the better angels of our nature mm -hmm. so that we wouldn't tear ourselves apart. Um, you know, Biden will be giving an inaugural address one week from today and uh, if I've written some speeches in my time, that, that wouldn't be necessarily the easiest speech uh, I or anyone else had to, uh, had to write. I mean, I think he's right in affirming that there is such a thing as the United States of America that he's becoming president of, but it's obvious that, you know, we have uh, divided into camps. Um, and I think the most important thing he can do once he takes office is put through the kind of economic measures that uh, benefit the American people, which inevitably will mean benefiting uh, the, the the red and the blue, uh, and seeing where where he can go from there. I mean, in other words, the only unifying program I think he can put forth really would be a sort of progressive economic. Hmm. John. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, in the piece that we wrote for the blog and also for social policy is that the first thing he has to address, obviously, is the coronavirus. Right. right and then he's right. got to deal, you know, ensure that people, you know, have enough income. They're not thrown out of their homes, which is really a, a, a real 
threat now. Uh, Dale Meharridge's piece in The Nation recently really, really was good on that. Um, and then they could have turned itself to a broader sort of industrial policy uh, and sort of rebuilding America, not unlike the parts of the New Deal, where there's improvements in economic opportunities, improving the labor laws once again, um, improving some training policies. I'm not sure that he can do all that in nine months, 18 months, two years, given the, the budget. And if he doesn't deliver, the drums are going to start beating again. Uh, and I think that this, I'm arguing to, and I have argued again in some other places, that this election was really very, very important. But the most important election is 2024 because we're gonna find out whether the two populist camps that are growing, and I include the left populist camp and the right populist mm -hmm. camp. And, they, and I, I sort of take a, a perspective that's not unlike Steve Bannon, where there's just not a linear right and left, it's a parabola. Right. And where the right and the left populism at the bottoms of that are growing while the middle of, of it is, you know, shrinking and dropping down into the right and left-wing populism. And I think as unemployment continues and technology and artificial employment or artificial intelligence gains a, a greater foothold, you're going to find more and more people dropping into those camps. And that 2024 is really going to be the fight between the left and the right in ways that we haven't seen in any time. So we only have a couple of minutes left, but I want to I want to spin this out, maybe get one more reaction from you both, because that's exactly where I wanted to go. I mean, I had a bunch of labor leaders on you know my show last week. And, and you know, I had to say that, you know, when you see people occupying, we've done occupations. When you see doing rallies, we do rally. Now we don't break in windows and assault cops because we, you know, we would get shot or get shit beat out of us. But I think that both of you are talking about this, you know, the, the, the left-wing populism, the right-wing populism, a lot of the things that Trump talked about were actually labor issues. Um, you know, Harold, what's, what's your take on this? Where we're going well, the, the, you know, the defining difference though is that uh, the right-wing populism defines its grievances uh, by, def you know, by defending white racism, right. white supremacy and right. all of that. So uh, in, in terms of, this nation being able to go forward at all, uh, you know, you have to put forth, uh, I think, Rooseveltian solutions. Remember, you know, the 1920s, the period before Roosevelt, uh, had some similarities to this. You had the, the height of the KKK was in the 1920s. Uh, the Democratic Party was, was really uh, divided since it was partly the immigrant North and the white Dixiecrat South. It was divided fundamentally and was going nowhere. Um, you know, Roosevelt put together a coalition based on progressive economics that was, you know, reasonably liberal on social issues, although they had to accommodate the, the white Southerners, and that was a huge, sure. a huge problem. Um, you know, if, if uh, the Democrats are going to prevail in 2024, as uh, John says is going to be, you know, a real challenge, and it is they're going to have to find kind of the modern day equivalent of that kind of program of that kind of solution. Uh, you know, and 
we've, we, we've always had a far right uh, in this country that was, uh, you know, a, a, a real problem. It may be more of one now because of right-wing media, right-wing social media. Uh, but, you know, uh, the Democrats have to, have to offer something very tangible, uh, not, uh, not rhetoric, uh, but uh, very tangible, a, a kind of economic security which, you know, tens of millions, if not more, Americans are not experiencing uh, to revalidate their claim to leadership. Well, let me pitch this to you, John, and, and then maybe how you want to take a crack at it. One of the things that I've been really blown away by, and you guys have been around, right? I mean, anytime we want to do anything, they always say, we don't have the money. We don't have the money. Well, it turns out they did have the freaking money, you know, when they had to. And so maybe to you, John, I mean, is there any chance we're actually going to get the kind of big ticket, you know, actual stuff that we need, or are they going to keep sort of nibbling around the edges? Well, I think you have to ask yourself who uh, really controls the Democratic Party. And I think it has a su sufficient interest in from Wall Street. And so whether that's going to work or not, it, any of those programs are going to work, I think is a real, is problematic at best. Look, if they had a program that's, I think Harold and I think maybe talked about in the past that Sherrod Brown put together. It was three months after the, the uh, 2016 election. It was all 78 pages and it was very specific. And it got absolutely no traction within the Democratic Party. Okay, it, it was great. Labor leaders loved it. Other people, progressives loved it, but it got, didn't get any traction from the people who were in charge of the, of the party. And so, and, and you've got Biden, who's, I don't, is not all that charismatic to be sure. And, and to be- Charismatic with faint praise, John. Yeah. And, uh, and you gotta have somebody who's gonna really challenge what's going on. I mean, I think, I mean, I think Sherrod and Sanders and some of the other more progressive wing of the party are going to be positioned in their committees to do some of that. Right. But Biden doesn't seem like the type of charismatic leader that can really push that. But they may get may get pushed into it. That's what I'm trying to say. Right. We can't right. underestimate what is about to happen on top of the coronavirus, on top of the already high levels of unemployment increasing inequalities, you're about to get a type of technological revolution that's going to be cross industries. And people are worried about it. I mean, if you look at the tech people, they've been having conferences over the last three years, a lot of them were in Germany, the Synergy Summits, that tried to figure out what are we going to do when all these people are going to be out of work because of our technology, and they're already mad at us. Right. And you right. can look at Facebook, t Twitter, and all the rest of the ones that are under a lot of uh, right now. So they're trying to desperately find a way through this without giving up a great deal of their wealth, I might add. Let's, let me go back to you, Harold, because uh, Evan, our producer, is just uh, flagging this 100-day uh, agenda that you guys put out. Do you want to maybe talk briefly about that before we wrap? Yeah, and we've also put out a one, uh, since the fall of 2019, we've been putting out a day one agenda, which was premised on the notion that uh, there are a lot of things the Democratic president 
elect whoever that might be in 2019, we had no idea, uh, could probably not get through Congress, but could do through executive power. But it's a lot, both the one, you know, both that and the 100-day agenda are uh, the things that, uh, you know, Democrats need to do right up top, beginning with the, uh, the, the pandemic, beginning with uh, spending to alleviate the, the economic collapse of a good chunk of our economy. Uh, and I, I would add that, you know, there's more and more stuff that the Democrats, just based on some news reports today, are trying to push into the budget reconciliation bill, which only takes 51 votes to pass. It's the mm -hmm. one thing that does not require uh, meeting the 60 vote uh, filibuster cloture hurdle. Uh, you know, they can jam a lot of stuff into that and they had better. I mean, as, as far as, you know, yeah, Biden has not exactly been either Mr. Charisma or a progressive uh, stalwart in his long career. But, you know, the, the one grounds I have for hope here is that necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, the necessity for the Democrats to ask, act fast and act big has probably never been greater. Agreed. All right. Well, we've uh, scratched the surface, but uh, I have a feeling we're going to be having uh, more of these conversations over the next couple of months. I appreciate you both taking some time for what I know are very busy days. Uh, and I appreciate all of the, it's, it's, it makes me feel better uh, being able to talk to you guys. I feel, I feel a little bit better than I felt earlier today. So thank you both for that. <laughs> all, all therapy will, will charge you by the hour. <laughs> That's right. Our bromides are cheap. That too, yes. <laughs> Bromos and bromides, yes. Uh, Thanks guys, appreciate thank it. Hang in there. You too. All right, that is of course, uh, American Prospect Editor-at-Large, Harold Meyerson and John Russo, Associate Editor at the Working Class Perspectives blog. Uh, you should check out uh, both of those. Lots of good reading there. All right, next up, uh, a very exciting organizing victory. Uh, we uh, actually, we don't have enough organizing victories, so they're all kind of exciting, but this one is particularly exciting. Uh, and to tell us about it, we're going to uh, a longtime friend of mine, uh, Kayla Blado. She's here in Washington, DC, works with the uh, Economic Policy Institute. Uh, for the purposes of this segment, she's president of the uh, NPEU, the Nonprofit Employees Union, uh, one of the fastest growing uh, unions and has just had an amazing string of organizing victories uh, over the last year when organizing, which has never been easy, Kayla, has been even more difficult. So tell us what's going on. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, so today, NPEU announced our largest organizing victory ever, which is excellent. Um, we're, um, we, we went public with the ACLU Staff United. So the staff union of the American Civil Liberties Union uh, National Office has been organizing with us for the last almost a year, probably wow. since the beginning of the pandemic. And they've been organizing for about two years internally. Um, and so it's been a lot of work, but today we went public with the campaign and asked management for recognition of their union. That's exciting news. A uh, couple of things. So how big is the, is the unit? It's about 300 people. Wow. So that's a, and I'm assuming, is this at the headquarters? Is this across the country? How does that work? It's all across the country. Um, they have folks in New York and DC and then states all across the country. 
Now, ACLU, of course, American Civil Liberties Union, uh, great organization, uh, you know, fights for, for rights and, and uh, you know, sort of wonderful uh, folks. Um, however, uh, do we, do, is it a slam dunk that they're going to recognize the union? I'm trying to be sort of politic about this and you can go ahead and tell us about the issues that you've had, I think in Kansas City, right? Yeah, so um, we're hoping that the ACLU does the right thing and recognizes their union. Um, we all know that workers' rights are civil rights and the ACLU should know that as well. So um, obviously as our country is in turmoil right now, the ACLU has really important work to be doing. Um, we're not trying to interrupt any of that by forming a union, but it also is extremely important um, that their workers have the protections of a union, um, particularly going back to the office after the COVID out, uh, pandemic, bargaining for working conditions. Um, and then particularly the, one of their issues has been um, retention of um, workers of color, particularly black women. So they really wanna focus on that. Um, and sorry to answer your question though, um, it is, it is. Uh, so we're hoping that they recognize. Um, uh, we know that one of their state affiliates, the ACLU of Kansas, who organized with the communications, they were with CWA, I think they, right. um, uh, that there, they were a small unit and uh, management had hired Ogletree Deacons there, this union busting law firm to um, try to bust their tiny unit there um, through organizing nationally. Their, their unit did a great job of getting the story out. They were able to actually have management um, drop Ogletree Deacons, recognize the union. Um, and so they, they're recognized and they're bargaining their first contract. All right, that's good news. All right, let me bring in my co-host, Patrick Dixon. Um, I think he has a question or comment. Good evening. I mean, I, I too was reading about uh, reading about this organizing success in the post earlier. They, they quoted the ACLU, the ACLU says, the ACLU has championed the right of workers to organize unions since its inception more than 90 years ago. The ACLU continues to support the rights of employees, both public and private, to organize unions and bargain collectively. That seems fairly straightforward, but I guess it doesn't always turn out that way, does it? Well, I mean, one of my questions though, and that was a nice setup, Patrick, but I mean, if they've, I mean, you know, when you have folks like this who recognize and fought for the rights of unions, why has their staff not been organized before? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they do have a small group of about 40 uh, paralegals and administrative and operations folks who uh, have organized with a UAW local, I think UAW 2110. Um, and so that they, they organized a few years ago and then this unit would basically be the wall-to-wall -wall, uh, unit except for those folks. Um, I mean, it's, it's a large organization. It's all over the country. It's a pretty siloed organization. I mean, a lot of nonprofits are, but I think theirs is particularly because they have a large legal department and then they have an advocacy department and then um, people who do development and communications and operations and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons that they're organizing is that they want to be a less siloed organization and have this kind of cross-departmental uh, communication 
Um, and that's actually one of the things that the organizers noted um, recently is they said that they've this through organizing, they got to get to know their colleagues so much better. They had people that, um, you know, they're in charge of contacting their um, to sign cards and and they had people that they're now friends with that they had never met before. So I think that's kind of cool. Well, that's a nice story because too often the the narrative that we hear around organizing efforts is frankly all the horrible stuff that happens. You know that you you know, you got to meet. You know uh, you have to hide. You know you nobody you, know, you people are afraid of getting fired. Uh, people do get fired. People do get disciplined. Um, and so it's actually you know I think there's always been that flip side because you know going having to talk to your fellow workers about you know real issues, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it really, it, it really does kind of, uh, you know, separate folks out in terms of which way you're going to go, right? Yeah, and um, not to say this about ACLU, but other other organizations that union bust, they try to play the union as a third party, right? Um, and we're not. I mean, I'm a nonprofit worker. We're all nonprofit workers, and like I've said before, the reason we're organizing our nonprofit is because we care about the mission and we want to make it a sustainable place. And so, you know, the management tries to paint us as divisive and coming in and, and breaking up their family, but, um, you know, there might not be a, a union drive if they had that kind of collaborative culture to begin with. Absolutely. Um, and then the, the, uh, the other really fascinating thing uh, that I've always noticed about, you know, these press releases I keep getting from you guys as you, you know, organize all these shops, is that more often than not, it includes this, you know, wonderful statements, you know, especially when when the management has gone ahead and and just uh, recognize, you know, right off the bat, you know, and and it's just not something you tend to see in announcements about organizing. It's usually, you know, and now we're going to go fight, you know, yeah. and so I just love that I, and in fact I and I don't usually like to quote bosses, but I, you know, when I get these lovely quotes from from employers talking really good stuff about the union, uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's cool. Yeah, and I think, I've, you know, we're, we're willing to fight when we need to fight and right. we definitely do. But I don't think that, like, I think a lot of times we're closer to agreeing than we think and, and basically having a union, you know, if the employer agrees that their workers deserve a union, I feel like that's halfway there, that's half the battle and basically, you know, agreeing on the composition of the bargaining unit. And then obviously bargaining tends to be stressful, but, you know, I feel like if you're all working at the organization because you care about the same things, then hopefully that's kind of a good start um, that you'll want to maintain the integrity of the organization and, and work to strengthen it together. Wow, Caleb Blado, congratulations uh, yet again. I can't, I've been saying this to you a lot and I'm happy to do it. Uh, and we will keep tabs on this. We want to see what happens with it. So keep us posted as I'm sure that you will. But uh, congratulations to you and to all the folks, uh, the workers at the ACLU. So keep up the great work. Thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Take care. That's Caleb Thank Lado. You. She's president of the Nonprofits Employees Union. All right. So uh, I actually, I always say I'm in DC, but that's because it's easier to say DC than to say I live in Silver Spring because where's that? Well, it's in Maryland is where I actually live. And for more than 80 years, Maryland has had a state song 
It was written by a pro-Confederate propagandist, refers to Abraham Lincoln as a tyrant and a despot, and denounces the Union forces, that would be the Union Army forces, not Union as in you know the organized unions that I work for, um, which included thousands of local patriotic Marylanders. It refers to them as Northern scum. I'm not making any of this up, by the way, this is all true. We are not going to play that song. Um, the Maryland General Assembly, in its wisdom, has refused for decades to repeal uh, this uh, racist song. Um, and one of the things they say is, well, we don't have anything to replace it with. Well, uh, Steve Jones, who uh, some of you will know, uh, is, uh, used to organize with the farm workers. He's with the uh, DC Labor Chorus. And um, he got together with Congressman Jamie Raskin, who's in the news these days. He is the lead, what do they, what do they call it? He's, he's the lead guy in the team, on the impeachment trial team, right? I don't know what that official name is. I think it's the honcho. He's the, he's, he's the lead honcho. I think, I think Jamie actually wrote the article of impeachment, if I recall correctly. Anyway, Jamie, great guy, been in the news a lot lately, but Jamie, and, uh, who's also a Native Marylander, uh, teamed up, uh, a congressman obviously, teamed up with Steve Jones. Uh, they've written a, a song so that the people who want to keep the uh, racist song can't say that there isn't another song. Uh, and so we thought that uh, we would play that for you. So uh, producer Evan, if you've got that cued, uh, why don't you roll that? Maryland, my Maryland, I'm coming back again from the western mountains to the ocean city shore. Rock. The free state began to find its name. Harriet Tubman built a secret lane, said, come on board this freedom train. Maryland, my Maryland, I'm coming back again from the western Rockville to Baltimore, Maryland, my Maryland. Rachel Carson told of the silent spring, of a time when birds no longer sing. Restore the Chesapeake for me and you, and all the Orioles will come home too. Words will flow. We 
come back to the grave of Edgar Allan Poe. A gardenia in the hair of Billy Holiday tells the promise of Maryland today. Maryland, my Maryland, I'm coming back. find the courage to make democracy send frederick douglas's message to all the land if you want progress come and make your demand maryland my maryland i'm coming back again from the western mountains to the Ocean City Shore, Rockville to Baltimore, Maryland, my Maryland. Oh, say, can you see Elijah Cummings now? Never took his hand from the freedom plow. And just as Thurgood Marshall brought down Jim Crow, so let the waters of righteousness flow. Maryland, our Maryland, we're coming back again from the western mountains to the ocean city shore, Rockville to That sounds like a song you could sing. I tell you what, that's Maryland by Maryland, the Free State song. It's uh, by musician Steve Jones. That was Steve on the piano there, and Congressman Jamie Raskin, Raskin, who um, my fellow podcast host uh, Jeremy Waugh tells me is the impeachment manager. Thank you, Jeremy. All right. Uh, by the way, the singer there was London. Meva. I hope I didn't mispronounce her last name. She's a high school student from Prince George's. Wow. Uh, that is amazing. All right. Uh, to introduce our next guest, I'm going to turn things over to Patrick. Thank you, Chris, and thanks for sharing that song. Uh, I'm excited that we're joined this evening by Nick Jurovich. Nick is an assistant professor of history and labor studies at UMass Boston and also the associate director of the Labor Resource Center. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I, I do a labor song of the week in my labor history class, so I'll put that one on the docket. <laughs> Interesting. Um, one of the one of the reasons we wanted to invite you on this evening then was after much deliberation and the uh, floating of various different names, Joe Biden selected his old friend Marty Walsh, the mayor of Boston, to to head up the labor department. Uh, can you tell for many people? outside of Massachusetts, he's not a popular figure. Can, can you tell us a bit about him and does he have your endorsement? 
Well, it's not up to me who's uh, who's Secretary of Labor, uh, but I will say, you know, uh, I think in Boston, in Massachusetts, there's first of all relief because the Department of Labor will not be actively hostile to working people and their unions, and that's a very low bar. But I think that is where we're at whenever we have this transition these these past two administrations. Um, and yeah, Marty Walsh. So he's the he's the son of Irish immigrants. He grew up in Dorchester. I'm I'm sitting here in Dorchester, about two miles from where he grew up. Um, and his father was a member of Laborers Local 223. He joined that union, uh, rose to be, I believe, its secretary treasurer, uh, and then was head of the Mass Building Trades Council while he was also, or sorry, the Boston Building Trades Council, while he was also a state rep. Um, and then in 2013 was elected uh, mayor of Boston. So he's held that post now for for two terms. Um, and he. Uh, yeah, he's, he's someone who's very much of the building trades, of the labor movement. Um, certainly there's a lot of enthusiasm for him in that world. People feel he's really done right by, by his, uh, his union and people he, he represents. Um, Frank Callahan, who's currently the head of that, that building trades council was on WBUR last week. I was listening, uh, talking about how here's a guy who has, you know, stood in an unemployment line. He's worked on a construction site. Uh, he's also acutely aware of the sort of health and safety uh, issues that not just construction workers face, but all workers face. And, you know, having particularly this sort of uh, the issue of unemployment and the issue of health and safety at the front of our Secretary of Labor's mind in this moment seems really valuable, I think. So there's some enthusiasm about him being knowledgeable about these issues in particular uh, from his time as a, as a building trades unionist. Some of the folks in some of the other kinds of unions, they'll sort of that there's some skepticism, I think, and it's because the building trades, they allege, uh, aren't necessarily representative of uh, the, the, the diversity of union members today, not in all locals, perhaps. Uh, and yet Walsh's defenders say that he's very aware of these things and that Walsh is the guy to change the building trades. And Walsh is, is really in front on issues of diversity, of bringing, uh, bringing women into the construction trades. What do you think? Well, you know, I think so. I think both things can be true. You know, it, it's so we are in a moment where the most dynamic sectors of the labor movement are led by women, are led by Black unionists, Latinx unionists, immigrant unionists. Uh, that's true here in Boston. Uh, I think of the BTU's Jess Tang, who's a brilliant organizer for that union as they've moved into the world of, of social justice education work. Um, you know, we think of the, the leadership of Unite Here Local 26, the UFCW, uh, 1445. So we've got progressive unionists in Boston doing this work. And I think they're part of that wider world of, um, of organizing we've seen over the last decade. Um, and certainly the building trades have not necessarily been at the vanguard of that, nor have they historically been. Um, you know, I'm a historian and it's hard not to compare Marty Walsh to the last building trades organizer to be labor secretary. I see Chris and Patrick smiling, uh, right? Peter Brennan of New York, who was as, as reactionary and vile as they come, instigated the hard hat riots. Uh, so reactionary, George Meany hated him. Um, and of course, Meany actually hated him not for being a reactionary, but uh, because he didn't deliver on the promise to raise the minimum wage uh, that he'd come in with. Um, so I think of that also in terms of Marty coming in with the promise of the PRO Act kind of hovering here uh, and to what degree he'll be able to be a sort of um, a voice for that and use the position as a bully pulpit. Uh, but Patrick, just to go back to what you were saying, you know. When we look at Marty Walsh and not just him, but the building trades council he led, it's true. I mean, in 50 years, the, the trades have evolved. I wouldn't say they've, it's not been a revolution, but you look at the, you know, the leadership of these unions, the diversity of these unions, it's night and day from what it was 50 years ago. Um, and there are, I think, some really promising directions, uh, especially here in Boston among the, the locals and as well as the, the council in terms of embracing some of these more progressive elements of organizing. Um, but, you know, nationally, that's not necessarily the case still. And I think, um, 
it'll be an interesting challenge for Marty Walsh, not just to represent sort of the unions he knows, but to be a part of the sort of the movement as a whole as it's grown over the last decade. And we hope he will. I'm going to go to Chris in just a moment, but uh, one, you know, one of the uh, one of the most sort of in flux areas in in in, in work life in America, I suppose, has been uh, the rise of many of the online platform jobs, um, and that's really sort of shifted the way in which many people interact with their employers, with their uh, with clients, and so on. Uh, in his capacity as mayor of Boston, has has uh, has Marty Walsh had to take positions on these types of issues. You know, I, I can't say something specific in that regard. I mean, he has, you know, as someone who's, um, you know, been very involved in sort of in the labor movement for a long time, he's generally sort of been supportive. You know, he's out on picket lines. He's really supportive of, of various uh, efforts here. Um, you know, there's a larger question of the economic transformation of Massachusetts, which itself is a state that, you know, like a lot of places, very unequal now. Uh, Boston, no exception. They're an extremely expensive city. Um, and certainly people on the left have, have wanted Marty to do a lot more to address, you know, crises around affordable housing, uh, around just the sort of general unlivability of a, of a very expensive city like Boston. Um, so I think there's, you know, you know he's, he's sort of balanced, as, as big city mayors do, the sort of many constituencies um, uh, in a way that I think some folks might have might have rightly been critical of, but he, I don't know that he's weighed in too extensively on the tech platform question. Uh, maybe he hasn't, I'm missing it, uh, but um, it's a good, it's a good question to ask, certainly, as we think about what's happening after Prop 22, the measures in the PRO Act, and just the degree that the Department of Labor can, can lean on uh, classification issues as, as one of the things it does with oversight. So, yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I want you know we're here in D.C. and have uh, worked with uh, the you know the local 12, FT local 12 that represents the workers at, at the Department of Labor, and I, I know a lot of the folks who work down there, uh, frankly, who are you know great professionals, and you know every time uh, you know a Republican, especially you know such a, a some oftentimes you've had you know people who headed the department who seemed like they were really just trying to dismantle it. Uh, either from a frontal assault or, you know, sort of bore it out from within. And I wonder if you can speak to, you know, what kind of culture change it means for a department to have, you know, a labor department to have somebody at the head of it who, who walks picket lines. I mean, you know, <laughs> tell me the last labor secretary who walked a picket line. No, I think that's right. And even, I mean, to sort of add on to that, the, the high profile nature of this sort of search, I think speaks to the degree to which, you know, uh, the union movement has been on the march and the degree to which people are paying attention to this question. Um, you know, I, I don't think there was nearly the enthusiasm or the sort of um, the tension around searches during the Obama and Clinton administrations around labor secretaries. And I think, um, yeah, I hope uh, that brings a sort of a culture change. And also, you know, thinking about what it means for then the, the sort of the work they do as, as administrators, hopefully this empowers them to be aggressive um, in going after violations you know, of health and safety of classification, um, wage theft, which of course is another huge issue in the, in the trades as well as all over the country. So, you know, I can't, I can't, you know these folks better than I do. I can't speak to what it'll mean for them uh, day to day, but I hope it does mean they've, they've got, they sort of feel empowered to, to put this kind of pressure out uh, from the department on employers to really make uh -huh. them live up to the law. Um, and hopefully we can make the law better too, but that's, uh, that's the next step. Well, but to your point, I mean, frankly, often the problem is that, you know, we've got good laws on the books, uh, but you wind up with, and, and you have good people that work in the department whose job it is to enforce the laws, 
um, and but you know they're under leadership that is you know either pulling them back or actively interfering, um, and you know people don't want to risk their jobs, obviously. So that becomes a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. I know, um, sorry. Go ahead. I, Nick, I know you've also worked extensively on public education as, as an area of uh, as an area of your research. What what can what what can or what should we expect from uh, from a new administration here now that uh, Secretary DeVos has uh, taken offence and resigned from the administration? You know, it's uh, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the response from Teacher Unionist to her resignation. Um, but I, you know, there's a lot of undoing, right? There's an enormous amount of undoing to be done here. And I do think, I mean, that for me, as someone who's been studying and sort of working in education, I've got my, my red Fred flag behind me, I'm, you know, proud member of the MTA here as a, as a faculty member at UMass Boston. The sea change in the way teacher unions, educators unions move, operate in the last decade is, is amazing. And of course, that's changed the way the entire world of ed reform, as it was once called, and, and sort of ed policy gets made. And I think, you know, DeVos represented in some ways the sort of the apotheosis of this kind of shift in, in right thinking to basically stripping, you know, I think it goes back to Milton Friedman and before, but stripping the existence of public education down to its parts and selling them off. And instead, we have, you know, the possibility of sort of rebuilding uh, sort of an idea of the public good. And I think, you know, where, where these things align for me, Patrick, is thinking about how do you articulate as a cabinet secretary, not just sort of the need to be a competent administrator and do the work of governing, but also sort of a vision of the public good, right? That public education is, is about sort of democratic promise and not just ensuring that kids do well on a test, right? And that likewise that, you know, the Department of Labor and sort of the right to organize is about democratic society and life, industrial democracy. It's not just about you sort of making sure that people obey, you know, a, a sort of myriad of laws. So I hope, I hope, you know, in all these kind of ways, the Biden administration can articulate not just a sort of, you know, a, a sort of competency, but actually a vision for, for public good. Um, that, you know, again, we heard earlier, I enjoyed listening to the first half of the show that sort of brings in, you know, these ideas about the New Deal and about sort of, um, you know, right, you know, reaching people as, in a sort of a, a more, more visible way for government to do that, yeah. Let me, let me, uh, we only have a couple more minutes, but I want to, I want to uh, dip, dip a toe into the sexy topic of labor law reform as, <laughs> as eyeballs roll up across the country. Um, and the reason I bring it up actually is, is, is a serious and, and, and a substantive one, which is, uh, you know, everybody was celebrating, hey, we won the presidency, we got the Senate, which is great. I mean, you know, I, I've got my bunting up as well. And people are like, you know, every, everything is good now, right? With Democrats are in control. And, and I keep having to remind people 2009, right? 2009, right? We had the presidency, we had the House, we had the Senate, we had a really poorly named and fairly weak labor law reform called, uh, bill called EFCA, the Employee Free Choice Act, um, which never even got uh, you know, anywhere in the Senate, right? And so, <clears throat> you know, I'm not trying to be a wet blanket, but you know, my concern is that and a reason that this, there's a bunch of things in it, but the main thing about, you know, the pro-choices is that, you know, most people in America want to be in unions, right? If they weren't fired and, and you know, terrified, most people in America would join unions. And, you know, we had Caleb Lato out, you know, when you have people in nonprofits that are joining unions, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a signal. It's a bit of a canary in the coal mine. So, so here's my question is, um, I told you where I am on the PRO Act and I'm, I'm pro for it, but I have my doubts about whether it's going to go anywhere. What's, what's your read? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you, everything you said, I, I think is exactly right. I've, I've heard the same, you know, Gene McAlevey had a piece of the same effect in The Nation maybe a week or two ago, um, or blog post rather. And I think, you know, just as with the sort of the cabinet appointments, you know, it would be a mistake to see, you know, the sort of the evidence of the power of labor at this moment, right? Making this a high profile appointment, likewise making the PRO Act something people are talking about, to treat that then as a kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of a source of power, right? And there was actually, um, in the network, there's a great podcast, um, Maximilian Alvarez's uh, working pod they did with, uh, uh, who is it, Jim Williams from uh, Union of Painters and Allied Trades. And you know, talking about how this has to be you know, a movement. It can't simply be hoping the politicians will carry it across the finish line. And you know, what that looks like, and I'm, you know, my, my organizing experience comes out of being a grad unionist, right? Um, so being in educator unions and thinking about sort of, right, like you said, all of these new organizing efforts and how to kind of take the energy from many of these organizing efforts and sort of speak broadly about, okay, what does it mean to, to push for labor law reform in a kind of systematic way? I will say one other bit of history, I had to look this up. So there's one other building trades guy who was labor secretary. Okay. This would be uh, Martin Durkin, Martin P. Durkin of Chicago, uh, <laughs> a, a plumber and pipe fitter. And he was Ike's first labor secretary, Eisenhower's, um, in a cabinet that was dubbed nine millionaires and the plumber. And, yes, that's uh, right, that's right. And, and he stepped down after eight months because Ike did not repeal Taft-Hartley's right to work and uh, loyalty oath provisions. He'd been told he would, he pushed for it. When the Commerce Secretary undermined him after uh, Senator Taft died, uh, he stepped down. So that too, you know, insofar as Marty has a bully pulpit, you know, Joe's his friend, he's sort of a younger avatar of Joe, that's great. Um, but I would love to see him put that kind of pressure on the administration, prioritize this, get it through Congress, or else I can't, I can't keep working with you, you've got to deliver. Um, I don't know if he'll do that, but I like that there's a model some 70 odd years back now that we can look to of someone saying, you got to do this or I'm walking, so. And, and actually walked. And actually walked, yeah. Right. So we, we always love uh, labor history uh, in our in our in our uh, shows, don't we, uh, Patrick? <laughs> That's terrific. Yeah. Harold, we had Harold Myerson on in a piece recently when he wrote about Marty. He did uh, he did invoke the fact that when uh, times when Biden refers to unions and his memories of unions, I think Biden often listed off the bricklayers, the carpenters, and the boilermakers. And Harold said, "Well, who? Even, do many people even know what a boilermaker is anymore?" But <laughs> Right. And they, this it speaks to something I think that was, you know, uh, John, John Russo was saying this, you know, right, the labor movement we envision is kind of a white working class that's still the sort of hegemonic, you know, New Deal, white male industrial order. And then the labor movement we have being much, much more diverse, much more complex um, and, and very dynamic. And so I hope, yeah, I think, you know, Marty comes from the building trades, but he's seen that movement. He's walked those picket lines in Boston you know, with Unite Here, one job should be enough, right? Pushing for sexual harassment provisions for you know, immigrant women housekeepers. And so I hope he takes that experience on those picket lines with him to Washington, along with his experience from the trades. It's been uh, terrific talking to you, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope we can work with you again, either on our live show or through one of our many uh, podcast affiliates. Hey, anytime. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nick. Solidarity. All right. Uh, that was great. We're going to have to get him on the Labor History Today podcast. That, uh, he just sort of uh, <laughs> forgotten about that. All right. That's going to do it for the uh, formal portion of the show, except we do have one more thing coming. Uh, just a reminder, uh, before we roll Labor History in two, uh, folks, stick around. We're going to do our usual 15 to 20 minute debrief, be joined by some other uh, labor podcasters, and we just sort of hang out and 
and uh, maybe talk about some of the stuff we talked about, maybe talk about some new stuff. I don't know. We, it's, uh, that's not scripted or uh, planned. Um, so coming up next, we always end, uh, we, get, we get an extra because we already got some labor history from, from Nick. So this is a, a bonus. Uh, today's uh, has some music in it. It has to do uh, with the time that Johnny Cash uh, went to Folsom Prison. So uh, Evan, if you can run that, then we've got a little bumper at the top and then uh, Patrick and I will be back uh, with some friends. So thanks everybody for watching. I'm Rick Smith and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1968. That was the day Johnny Cash performed at Folsom Prison. The Man in Black had played numerous free prison concerts before. Country music legend Merle Haggard remembered seeing him perform at San Quentin a decade earlier. Columbia Records recorded the two concerts at Folsom for release. It was these recordings that many credit with revitalizing the career of Johnny Cash. His daughter Roseanne believes the 1968 appearance signified her father's own personal liberation, saying, quote, that was the moment he came into the light, when he embodied who he really was. Performing with the Tennessee Three, June Carter, Carl Perkins, and the Statler Brothers, Cash hit the charts with Folsom Prison Blues, which sold more than 3 million copies at the time. He also took the opportunity to advocate for prison reform and prisoners' rights, providing testimony on the subject in the early 1970s. His brother told the BBC in an interview, quote, he identified with the prisoners because many of them had served their sentences and had been rehabilitated in some cases, but were still kept there for the rest of their lives. He felt a great empathy for those people. Cash might not have actually shot a man in Reno, but he always sided with the underdog. His songs highlighted the working man's life, from the sharecroppers, coal miners, and auto workers to railroaders, truckers, and prison chain gangs. Cash always gave an unromanticized view of hard living and hard labor, as well as interracial and class solidarity. I hear the train a coming, it's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryintwo.com. If you do, you can hear their voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land, and they will until we all come to understand. None of us are free, none of us are free, none of us are free, and one of us is chained, none of us are free. All right. Nice job, Evan. Very smooth. Mm -hmm. Your, 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 uh, 
you're muted, my friend. A little better than last couple of weeks. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're 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 getting there. It's Always just, improving. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. I mean, it was actually. I I thought it was pretty tight, Patrick. What do you think? I think that everything seemed to work. You know, work on time. Um, one thing, actually, we and I, we should have tested this before. Your mic sounds low to me. Evan, are you hearing it? Because it sounds low. I don't know. Yeah, Patrick's Patrick's vocal is low to me. It sounded good um, till maybe just this moment ago for for Patrick's. I don't know. Are you using internal or an external mic? Internal. I mean, I get myself a snowball, you're telling me. Yeah, we need to get you a snowball for sure. And <clears throat> so it's, that's, that's an approved expense as soon as we uh, actually I need to follow up. Uh, we still haven't gotten the AIL check, I guess. Uh, no, I need to. Uh, well, I, I I should double check. Uh, double check because um, uh, I I actually just got two other ones for the film fest. So double check because the yeah. mail is a bit funky right now. Uh, but I think they were cutting that before the end of the year. They were trying to get some money spent that they had to spend. So uh, I don't want to I don't want to hit them up if if it you know was just in the mail. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we need to get you a mic because it's definitely it's low for sure. Okay. But uh, no, I thought and 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 everybody was. I tell you what this keeping the, the segment shorter, which actually, honestly, I, I got that. Remember Rick talked about all his segments are 18 minutes. Yeah. Hmm. I think he's right. You know, definitely onto something. I, I did want to make one point. Uh, Chris, you shared an article with me uh, this weekend about, you know, making the Republicans going the way of the Whigs and this idea of, destroying the GOP, the Republican Party. I think, I understand politically, if you're a Democrat, maybe it's not the best um, messaging, but for the rest of us who are not, you know, seeing these members every day, I, I think when you look at the Federalists, as soon as they're, the Federalists disappeared as soon as they were seen supporting some of the Tories and the British after the War of 1812. And so this insurrection and this just, I think cratering right now of the, the GOP, this is the opportunity to really sweep the GOP, the way of the Whigs, the way of the know nothings, the way of the Federalists. And then that will open up a new birth of freedom uh, to split the Demo Democrats and um, actually have legislators who are not brought into office to literally dismantle the government and the administrative state, as Steve Bannon said. So. I don't, um, I mean, I want to be clear. I mean, I sent that to you because you've been talking about it and I was like, oh, you know, I thought Evan was just on his little, you know, soapbox there. And I thought, oh, actually this is a thing. And I just, you know, letting you, letting you, uh, I mean, anyway, but look, the thing about all this political stuff, I mean, some of my, uh, one of my best friends is a libertarian. He's always telling me I'm a liberal Democrat, you know? And I'm like, I've been voting Democrat because what the hell else am I going to vote for? But that doesn't mean, I mean, I can tell you all the shit that's wrong with the Democrats. I, you know, I, I have serious, serious problems with the party. Um, <laughs> I remember one time years ago, I was, uh, I started to get involved in Democratic Party politics. And the reason I didn't was because I went to the meeting. And so the meeting starts at seven and then at 7.15, Patrick shows up late and they say, oh, Patrick's here now, so let's start again, right? And then at 7.30, Evan shows up uh, late, 
and they're like, okay, at 7.30, we'll start over and go. And I was like, what the, you know, <laughs> we are, what about all of us that were here at seven o'clock? What the hell kind of way is this to, it's, it, to me, it was kind of a metaphor, you know, for people who couldn't get their shit together. So I'm, so I agree that the Democratic Party needs to be split. And I think they are going to, frankly, because I don't think the AOC is going to stand by for some of this shit that the moderates are going to try and pull. So I don't disagree with you. I get yeah, nervous. Is, on the AOC comment, the AOC made a comment a few years ago about um, if in another country, Joe Biden and I would be in different political parties. Well, OK, so let's look. I mean, just to use it as, as an example, uh, Germany, the large, world's largest functioning democracy, uh, you know, in Germany, you have a multi-party system and, you know, AOC would be in a different party from Biden and Biden would be in a more centrist party. Now, neither of those parties would make up the majority and they'd probably end up having to come into a coalition with one another in order to form a government. But then at the same time, you know, you have an alternative for Deutschland, the, the far right party, which would probably represent where the uh, Republicans are right now, you'd have... a so there is something to be said, I think, for um, there is something to be said for these sort of multi-party democracies. I mean, the, uh, I do have some concern that in the, the Republican Party today is a reflection of how many Americans think. And there was a, 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 a feature on the uh, New York Times Daily podcast this morning about uh, booting all of these far-right people off of Facebook and off of WhatsApp and off of Instagram and. So sure, now they can't communicate with these and so they're using encrypted devices. So if you boot people completely out of the system, it doesn't mean they don't exist. Right, and right. And that, that's sort of my point when I, when I hear people, you know, whether, you know, usually it's them, but sometimes it's us talking about, let's get rid of, you know, these idiots, right? And even if I agree with you that they're idiots, right? Like today they're idiots, but tomorrow the idiots are in power and then we're the idiot, right? You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it, it instinctively makes me nervous, you know, even when we have the upper hand, um, you know, I mean, and we've seen it, you know, when, when the Democrats changed the rules and then lost power and then got screwed by the rules that they changed. And I understand why they changed it. The Republicans were being, were, were gaming the system, you know, and it was very frustrating. Um, but, you know, the, you know, in my view, Republicans are going to game the freaking system no matter what. They're really, really good at it. I don't know why they don't figure this out. Like the Republicans are shit at running things, but they're really good at posturing. And we're really shit at posturing, but we're really good at running things, right? <laughs> yeah, I think another hope though is the supply chains, you know, of the Republican Party, the donor class, the billionaires that allow this this whole astroturf. And I mean, it's not all AstroTurf, of course. There's there's 70 million people that voted for Trump, but you know, bring that billionaire money into the Democratic Party. Obviously, the Democrats have represented huge swaths of Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Um, allow the GOP, not even allow. It's, I think the electorally, the party realignment's already happening, and it's mm -hmm. the GOP is going to become a regional party of yeah. fanatics and and super right wing folks. And then the Democrats are going to, you know, be the big tent that's eventually going to split next. And that's where I think labor has its opportunity with a lot of these um, progressive minded folks who want progressive policies.
Yeah, but I mean, let's be clear, labor has our own problem, which is that, you know, we are, we as a movement are, and, and we, it, it was in, we didn't get into it and it was fine and it wasn't the subject, but, uh, you know, just alluding to, you know, where the trades are. I mean, let's be honest, you know, a big percentage of the trades are Trump voters and right-wing voters. This is a well-known fact. Um, you know, even though some of the leadership is actually like, like the painter's leadership is actually, and the laborers have really progressive leadership, but their members, not so much. Um, you know, the, you know, you look at the, uh, there's probably going to be this, uh, you know, out and out war uh, between uh, Liz Schuler um, and, uh, and, and Sarah Nelson over the, you know, the next leadership of the AFL-CIO. On some, on one part, I don't like it because I have friends on both sides of that particular, you know, issue. On the other hand, it's probably something that the labor movement needs right now. You know, we need to have that uh, discussion, debate, fight. Um, you know, uh, but we, 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 so we're not monolithic either, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, Patrick, oh yeah, I know, I know Patrick has something to say about I, this. Commander of its initiative for Labour and the Working Poor has uh, no position on whether Liz Tudor or Sarah Nelson should be the next leader of the AFL. We have no position on it, just to be <laughs> perfectly clear. We enjoy working with both, uh, both Absolutely. leaders, and the AFL will uh, soar into a bright and sunny future under either leadership. <laughs> that said, Patrick. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm waiting for the caveat and then drop the hammer. I was actually trying to get you to address the, the overall issue of, you know, that we, you know, let's, let's just talk about public sector, private sector, you know, the healthcare workers are in a different place, you know, that, that more of those kinds of, of uh, things, you know, I mean, one of the great things about the Trump, you know, presidency has been that, you know, it's not just us, but just talking about the labor movement, we all, we all, except I think for what was it, the border guards, I think that I think that was the only union that endorsed them was the border guards. I'm, I'm pretty. I could be wrong. Somebody could correct me, but I I think it, that there was only one union that endorsed them. I mean, even even Reagan, I think, got more than that. And Reagan we hated Reagan too. And Patco. Oh yeah, Patco. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Teamsters. Yeah, Teamsters. I, I think the idea of this three trillion dollar proposal that Biden's been floating um, on budget. This yeah. is outside of the Federal Reserve that I keep pushing for for federal lending, but the three trillion dollars. I was so not going to raise that. I appreciate you putting that in there, but I was like, I, I need another ten minutes just to explain yeah. that. So the three trillion dollars, though, I mean, you you have to if you're Biden, and you have to be thinking like FDR with all these crises, and right. you have to be thinking about we need to rebuild the infrastructure. I mean, people, even if you're anti-U.S. foreign policy for the last twenty years. China and Russia are literally like China's just taking over. I mean, they, they produce 60, 70% of the, the world's steel. You, you need a domestic self-sufficiency and you need to bring a lot of this back home. And a lot of it can be then applied not to war, but to a peace competition and to rebuilding the entire infrastructure. I mean, it's, it's not just that China has depressed labor because now they're getting to the point where they have 30,000 kilometers of high-speed rail. So they have very fast transportation. Their, their electricity costs are gonna go down while, while ours is gonna go up. So we need to invest in this. That's gonna create building trades jobs. And I think a lot of these people are, are low-hanging fruit if you can actually go back to production and, and focus on physical public work works investment. Right, no, I, I actually agree with that. I just, I'm, 
I'm skeptical that there's leadership for it. Um, you know, it's, it's it, as we sort of mentioned during the show, I think one of the interesting things about that pandemic is that it's shown that, you know, when, when we're in, you know, serious, serious trouble, we've now seen it twice in the last 10 years, you know, we saw it after the, the 2009 meltdown, right? Uh, where all of a sudden they found all this money to you know bail out and, and uh, keep the system from you know going over the cliff, and now you know here all of a sudden it's like I mean you know even just a few years ago you know anybody who talked about giving everybody a check you know was was you know called a communist for God's sake seriously I mean there's absolutely no way you know any of us that were talking about a universal basic income it was not even a serious even even in, in in the labor movement it was not a serious topic. You know, you, you were just not considered at all. And the fact that, was, you know, that it was done, that people got checks and that, you know, that kept them, kept, you know, roofs over their heads, you know, shows, you know, to your point that we, we can do this. We actually can do this. This is, that's always the thing that sort of amazed me about Trump was that, you know, if he had just done some investing in infrastructure, right, like, you know, rather than building a stupid damn wall that didn't benefit a single person, in fact, pissed off a whole lot of people down there on the border, if he'd actually just built some roads, first of all, he would have picked off a bunch of the trades, right? Because that's jobs, you know, and those of us who like to drive on roads that aren't full of potholes. I mean, I, you know, I, I actually thought that was like the one thing he was gonna do. Yeah, and he came in, you know, with that promise. And of course, like Wall Street's going to come out and say, oh, we need austerity right now, you know, and all the billionaires are going to freak out if anyone tries to raise their tax rates to like Bush eras, let alone Eisenhower era. So, you know, Biden's got to pick the fight, you know, and if he doesn't, then what we see today with the current GOP, it's going to be much stronger and even more dangerous than we're at now. Right. And this is probably a good place to end it. But, you know, one of the things I keep coming back to is that uh, and when I've talked to folks about because I keep asking people, you know, uh, you know, how, what you know, everybody's talking about the PRO Act, the PRO Act. And I'm like, I don't think the PRO Act is going to get one in the halls of Congress. It's going to be it's going to be a movement outside uh, that's going to get, you know, whether it's PRO Act or the kind of thing that you're talking about, that these have to be movements um, you know, and the, the right kind of movements that really do mobilize people. Um, and, you know, my problem is that, you know, like, um, even though I totally am for labor law reform, you know, you go out and you start talking to union members, there is, there is not people, you know, if you have a union conference in DC, not during a pandemic where you have hundreds of people that are in DC, they will go to the Capitol and wave signs for the PRO Act. But will they, you know, Will they sleep in on the lawn for it? I don't think so. Half of the, sorry, like I, I love our labor rallies, but half of the folks that go are staff from the internationals. Like, true, not wanting, it's true. The, not wanting to give the game away, but. Uh, Everybody knows this, this is absolutely true. Now, or, or, they're, or like I say, they're already pre, pre uh, you know, uh, a lot of times these rallies are, the, you know, the, you, the union stage or political convention in town so everybody comes to town for the political convention and then we march up to the hill. I mean, you know, it's fun. I like doing it, but that is not an actual movement. I mean, you and know. Just the question is, I mean, one of the questions is though, if, you know, if it's the chance of getting the PRO Act or as, if it's as heavy a lift as, as, as you're suggesting, you know, do you take the half a loaf? 
And then people say you're not being really radical enough and you're not really doing what you need to do to transform this economy. But some people will say, well, we can't get the full loaf this time, but let's take the half loaf and, you know, and then people will introduce language like, well, you're just nibbling at the edges as opposed to... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't have an answer for that, you know, because I'm not a policy person right. and policy bores me, but uh, I would say that, you know, the, the answer from our point of view in the network is to make sure that we're getting, you know, whatever happens with that fight, right? that we're getting people's voices out in that fight. Because if there's gonna be any chance to build a movement, whether it's about what Evan's talking about or the PRO Act or you know, uh, wage theft, which frankly, wage theft is, a, is an issue that gets people out in the streets. Um, and interestingly, it crosses some interesting lines. I mean, Carl Racine, for God's sake, has turned out to be yeah. really good on, on, uh, on wage theft. I mean, actually collecting lots and lots of money off of rich companies for actually you know, putting, you know, putting payback in people's pockets um so and he's suing the president as a that's right yeah that's right so i'm just saying you know i think that that uh that's that's something that the the answer from the network is you know let's make sure that we're giving oxygen and support uh to people who have these points of view um so that you know you, you have a chance of getting as much of the loaf as possible that would be my answer I just don't want to end up four years from now when we you know got jack shit to show for them again. Yes, I agree. But I just don't want people to be, you know, <laughs> I, I think I think people I think people's uh expectations, frankly, after going through eight years of Obama, and you know, it's not that we didn't get anything, but a lot of things that people thought we were gonna get, um, you know, turned out not to be true. So I think people's expectations are probably a bit more tempered this time around. Uh, I think the points that were made earlier about Obama, about uh, about Joe not being, I mean, a uh, uh, charismatic figure, I'm one of the ones who completely got it wrong. When I looked at that field, I figured Joe would be long gone. I mean, I, I never had any money on Joe Biden at all. He's old. He's boring. He's not only not charismatic, he's anti-charismatic, you know, um, to this day, when I hear him speak, you know, I'm like, really, <laughs> you know, um, but I think he does have a lot of good people. I think the Kamala pick was an excellent pick, especially if he lets her get out there and run some point on stuff, uh, this could really work. And like I said, I think there's a whole bunch of people in Congress uh, that are gonna be pushing hard. So I, I think Biden is less important individually. Um, and frankly, after four years of Trump, maybe somebody who doesn't you know, piss people off all the time, <laughs> you know, you know it may be time for somebody who's a little bit boring, right? Sanders has a committee chair now, doesn't he? I don't know. Does he? I believe so on, on Senate finance. Oh, they gave him something big, didn't they? That was kind of on, his on uh, budget, I think, on the budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, they had to get, they had, because he wanted, uh, he wanted uh, labor and they didn't give him labor. So they gave him some big committee. And Sherrod Brown on banking as well. Yeah. So it's going to be That's what I'm saying. I mean, those guys could raise some hell, right? Venezuela. <laughs> All right, that's a whole other show, whole other show. You better listen, my brother, because if you do, you can hear their voice.
across the years And they're crying across the ocean They're crying across the land And they will until we all come to understand None of us are free None of us are free None of us are free if one of us 